0: Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, spiff your quiff over here. <laughs> this is the comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at sequart Sequart.org to get your best in comic book and pop culture news, reviews, and critique, buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember, Sequart is on Patreon, supports more criticism in comics. So, shall we go on straight to the news, Sean? Yes, I have an asterisk, Tom. That's reviews. The new Asterix books also is only coming out in four months, Sean. You're, you're ahead of the curve. By the
1: way. <laughs> I have an addendum to my Marvel list from last episode. Ah, uh, the rent. Yes. Uh, so following, I think this was two or three days ago, Star-Lord has been cancelled at issue six. This is the Marvel series by Chip Starsky and Chris Anka, which was doing pretty well creatively, if not commercially. And I did want to bring this up because I overlooked it when I was talking about Marvel's many, many problems before they actually get to women in diversity. Uh, But I want to start with a quote from Zdarsky himself. He said uh, at the end of a long post talking about the fun times that he had on the book and congratulating Chris Anka on a job well done, etc. He said, and I quote, Trade sales won't save the series, but it may show the higher-ups that a series should breathe a bit before laid out to pasture. He's not wrong. We have been saying this for years now on the board. But something that happened as a result of this was I was talking to a younger mutual acquaintance of ours, and it seems to me that somehow, at some point in the fairly recent past, terminology has shifted a bit, and I'm troubled by this. I thought that when Marvel markets a series as an ongoing, as opposed to a miniseries, which they did in this case, I went back and I looked at the CBR puff pieces that were being published once the Star-Lord series was being solicited, and they explicitly said, this is an ongoing series. Now, I assumed that that meant... It's going to be at least more than one arc. Issue number can come and go, but there has to be at least more than one storyline for it to qualify. To the younger reader I was discussing this with, however, there was no contradiction. It's an ongoing series that lasted
0: six issues and an annual. They had an annual? The annual is, I think, next month or It also double-shipped, right? Because if, if it double-shipped, it's... An annual for three months of publication, which is a pretty drastic way to count a year.
1: It's transparent, right? They're basically jamming whatever they didn't get done in the six issues before cancellation into the special so they can get it out and try, have a hand of some kind of closure, whatever. Now, this is a very, very big problem. Because on the one hand, I sort of understand, and this is rare for me to say, I sort of understand where Marvel is coming from. Even if they did cause this problem themselves, the reality of the current market is that when you say that something is a limited series, a miniseries, you are effectively hobbling it at the knees. You will guarantee that there will be less engagement on the part of the readers because they will not be as likely to pick up a miniseries. Now, as I said, Marvel did this because all of their miniseries for the last... 5, 10, 15 years that have dealt with fallout from events or whatever have been largely inconsequential and, to be frank, not very good. So, I can't blame the readers for having learned that lesson and now Marvel is struggling with, okay, even if we're only willing to let the series run for six issues on low sales, don't call it a miniseries. Say it's an ongoing anyway. The But again, what they end up doing is they are teaching the wrong lessons because what I learned from the cancellation of Star-Lord is not to pick up Chips Darsky's Spider-Man because they can say it's an ongoing. For all I know, it's going to get canceled five, six issues in, only deal with one storyline and even then not really manage to have the space to do it properly. Hmm. So why should I? You know, it's a deception that leads to mistrust on a very basic level.
0: Their justification for quite a long time, which is a bad justification, had been that, like TV, they are now working in a seasonal model. Which is to say, you know, you launch, and you finish a story, and then you launch it again, but it's just another season. And they've been saying it, and it's wrong. For one reason, seasons don't change the name of the show in the middle. So... It won't be legendary Star-Lord and then Star-Lord. Can you imagine, I don't know, even stuff like Fargo? Like, first season is Fargo, second season is legendary Fargo, third season is all new, all different Fargo. You, you don't do that. B, most of the TV show, I I've chose Fargo, which is a bad example because it's one of those anthology shows, most TV shows have a strict progression. And when you're talking about something like Game of Thrones... Launching at number one doesn't help because nobody says, well, here's the first episode of the third season of Game of Thrones, start watching from there. Because if you're adapting the the terminology of today's quote-unquote peak TV, the big point of it is that you have to start from the beginning and finish at the end. You can't just say, well, it's a new number, it's a new episode one, start there. Nobody starts in the middle season of Mad Men or The Americans or The Wire or whatever.
1: Well, there's another element to that as well, right? Marvel want to invoke the seasonal pass or whatever. But the reality of the situation is when a TV series makes it to air, there will be a certain number of episodes that are guaranteed. When it's network television, it'll be 22 episodes. If it's uh, uh, Showtime or something, it'll maybe be 12, 13, whatever.
0: Yeah, your Netflix, eight episodes, whatever.
1: It is very, very, very... Very rare for a television series, even one that's not doing great in ratings, to be canceled midway through. Exceptionally rare. So it's a little disingenuous for Marvel to say we're taking the television seasonal route, because in the television seasonal route, they will commit to a specific amount of episodes. Marvel doesn't even do that. They have never, to the best of my knowledge, said... We are guaranteeing this amount of essentially doing what DC did with uh, DCU, right? Where they committed to a certain amount of issues, and those issues will see print, no matter what the sales are. And then (laughs) Prez. Well, there you go. No, Prez, you're right. But I think also like Prez was a situation where, and I've said this so many times, right? The, the readership does bear responsibility, but not in the way that Brian Bendis says. They bear responsibility in the fact that they don't hold these publishers accountable for what they do. Comic book readers are one of the most passive audiences ever, and it pains me to say it, right? They held Dan DiDio's ass to the fire when he tried to cancel Omega Men, but they didn't do it for Prez because, quite frankly, Prez wasn't any good. So nobody was really mourning it
0: going. Some people were. We we certainly weren't. We, we were angry on principle rather than... In favoring of the comic.
1: Exactly. But nobody forced DC to comply with that request either. And by the same token, you know, Marvel doesn't feel any obligation to say, okay, we're taking the seasonal route. So
0: just so you know, this quote-unquote season is going to last 12 issues. It's going to last 10 issues. It's going to last Not, eight not since Miller's ultimate, right? Not since Miller and H. Ultimate season 1 and then season 2. Which had the decency to say, obviously Brian H. is not going not to be able to draw... 13 issues so let's do a stop and then waited for a year and a half and he was still about two years late by the end of it but you know that's our hitch
1: yeah it does foster a very very deep feeling at least on my part of distrust I am at the point now where I don't even look at new Marvel releases anymore because what's the point? First of all, you know, I read comics digitally. If it retroactively turns out that Marvel managed to not screw up a series and let it go for 12, 20 issues, whatever, I can always go back and pick it up later. I'm not going to contribute. I'm not going to give them any money for that. There's no point. I don't know. How long they're willing to commit to any given project that they put out, no matter how popular the writer, no matter how popular the artist.
0: No matter if the character is two months away from a movie.
1: Exactly! Star Lord, the film is coming out next month, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and they have nothing in place for that.
0: I assume they're just gonna, you know, publish a lot of traits.
1: Trades are all well and dandy, but then, you know, you publish a Bendis trade of Guardians of the Galaxy after the film, people are going to take one look at it because Bendis can't do comedy to save his life. They're going to be like, what the hell is this? It's not going to work, right? When Scotty Young was doing Rocket Raccoon, that book was funny in the same way, more or less, as the film. Zdarsky's take on Peter Quill, by the way, on Star-Lord, follows a lot of that sensibility, right? That comedic tone. Bendis? No. Hell
0: no. 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 Now, speaking of Marvel books with the word star in the title, see, it's all connected. <laughs> um, speaking of Marvel book with star in the title, uh, IDW is going to publish Star Wars. And if you're doing uh, like a little spin, what, 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 what? what? Uh, we thought Marvel was publishing Star Wars. Star Wars is owned by Disney. Disney owns Marvel, Marvel Comics. Marvel makes Star Wars comics. IDW is going to publish Star Wars Adventures, which is a Star Wars titled aimed at kids. Uh, you remember when Dark Horse had the Star Wars license and they had those Clone Wars adventures? Differently from the more grown-up, serious, whatever, grim and greedy, regular Star Wars books. IDW now has the license from Lucasfilm via Disney to publish uh, kid Size digest trades for kids. Which, on its own, fine, you know. I have no opinion whatsoever about about most Star Wars books, but... The big question is, what does it say about Marvel? It basically says that Disney trusts IDW, which, now recall, also publishes actual Disney comics. IDW has the license for DuckTales and Mickey Mouse and and Donald Duck Comics and Uncle Scrooge. The big classics are published by Fantagraphics. Disney trusts just about any other company other than Marvel to publish actual comics aimed for kids, which is astounding to me. They bought Marvel Comics, but they don't really care about Marvel Comics. And we, we knew they bought them mostly for the movie license. Fair is fair, you want to publish the characters. The movies were a big success before they bought them. They're even bigger success now. But they basically bought that company and they're telling the comics department, which was up until recently the department, we don't care about you. You're You're not very good at your job. We're going to let other people who we think are better do your job for you, i.e., Publish Star Wars comics for for kids because if you publish Star Wars and you cancel it for kids, you're not doing your job right,
1: right? yeah, I mean we were talking last episode about how interesting it was that Marvel's top selling titles, right the books that make it into the top 20 are all Star Wars books, but even that is sort of what we didn't say at the time was when you're talking about the direct market, that's maybe a hundred thousand people reading comics. Maybe. No more than that.
0: Well, 100,000 people for the highest grossing title. There are a lot more people. They're just... Nowadays, they are far more dispersed. We have far more titles and more companies.
1: Absolutely. And that's not even taking into account digital readers, of course. But I'm saying, like, when Disney look at sales data from Marvel saying, OK, Marvel in the direct market, because that's the information that's accessible, 100,000 people. Star Wars films, especially with the resurgence now, right, with uh, the new trilogy and, um, what was that film, Rogue One? One, millions and millions and millions of people are watching it.
0: And I assume, I have no idea, do you know how much the book sells? All the various Star Wars books that they're churning there out haven't nowadays? Been,
1: there haven't been many books that have been released in the quote-unquote new canon, but the ones that have come out seem to be popular, They seem to be, I don't know if they're bestsellers, but they're, you know, they're doing their job. So it does seem very bizarre to me that anyone would express surprise at the prospect of Disney going elsewhere. Because if Disney have any sense of Marvel's strengths and weaknesses, then yes, you should know by now that they don't do well with younger readers, in the least. They've got nothing for them so if idw is capable of providing that market they might as well go to them it's a slap in the face to marvel but who- I, I
0: don't think it's a slap in the face here it's just like we've talked about in the last episode i think marvel has given up on that market when they talk about diversity one of the things they're talking about is younger readers people who are well to be fair, not us right people who are Never have been Marvel zombies before, and they will have a hard time becoming Marvel zombies now. And it's so weird to me why? Why would you give it up? Why would you throw away the retire from the ring before the bell even started? Part
1: of the problem, I think, goes back to the issue of their talent pool, right? Who's gonna write these books that are intended for children? Jason Aaron, Colin Bunn. Who's going to write them? When Boom manages to corner the market and IDW managed to corner the market on younger readers, it's because look at the people that they actually have working for them who are writing these books. Uh, you, you've got Noelle Stevenson. You've got uh, Grace Ellis, who we'll talk about a bit uh, later in the episode. You've got all of these creators, uh, even someone like James Tinian, because I read the Backstagers and it was like, OK, the, that's an evidence of a book that could be used for all ages Audiences.
0: I think it, uh, there's a lot of Marvel people that can do it. Greg Pak, I remember, had some very, very well-received... Uh, when Marvel had... What was it? Marvel Age? Not Marvel Age. After Marvel Age. Marvel Adventures? The Avengers? Whatever. Something like that, yeah. yeah that was a very fun series for children. Same with uh, Fred Van Lanta. And even Peter David's uh, Wolverine First Class, which was basically a Kitty Pride book with Wolverine as the mentor figure. hmm they have these people they just they've thrown away th- that line. They don't do it anymore. Thinking about it this way, right? Greg Pak to the best of
1: my knowledge is currently working on one Marvel title. He's doing uh uh what is it? Uh, totally the Awesome Hulk, Hulk, yeah. And that's it, right? So it's not I mean when we talk about the prominent writers at Marvel, who are they? They're the ones who are spearheading the the major titles. These are not people you'd give all-ages books to. Bendis is going to write an all-ages book. You, you, you remember Takio, <laughs> the young adult Bendis book? Oh, God. Oh, woof, woof, woof. So, yeah, it, it does come to... And, like, on the flip side of that, look at who are working at IDW. I have no problem believing that someone like Kelly
0: Thompson, for example, could do an all-ages Star Wars book. W- well, Kelly Thompson is doing a Star Wars book right now. They've just announced, but it's one of the regular Marvel titles. She's doing a Captain Phasma book with uh, Martin uh, Chittichetto. Yeah, but that's... I'm assuming
1: that she's doing this for Marvel.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so yeah, that's my point. Like,
1: it... For Marvel specifically, what they put out with whatever creators they can get, fine. If the objective is, let's put out an all-ages title, I don't think that they really have enough writers in their current pool to do it. Like, like who are the highest-profile writers at Marvel? Who are the ones that are dictating things? You've got Nick Spencer. You've got Mark
0: Wade. Dan slot. Dennis Hopeless. Charles Soul in terms of numbers, at least.
1: <laughs> you know, Charles like he might actually be able to do it. No, but...
0: I, I, Charles Soule can pretty much write everything. It, it won't be for my taste, but he can write everything. He can write a legal document one minute, and then a Star Wars comics the next, and then something about dinosaurs. They have Amy Reader.
1: No, but Amy Reader is only doing, uh, what's it called? Moon Girl. and I think she's not even doing Moon Girl anymore. I think Moon Girl is still ongoing, but in the latest solicitation, the writer is listed as Brandon Montclair, and the artist is Natasha Bustos. I don't think that Amy
0: Reader is involved anymore. Maybe maybe she takes a month off. Maybe she's finally back, canceling <laughs> Rocket Girl, which has been delayed for ages now. But you know, fro- throw some Star Wars money at Amy Reader. Sure, Sh- throw some Star Wars money at Amy Reader. Tell her to make I don't know a Rebels comic or whatever.
1: It wouldn't be enough. If IDW, you know, IDW's talents are capable of producing three Star Wars titles, four Star Wars titles. Well, right now they're only
0: talking about a line of, I think, digests. So it's probably going to be like, you know, two or three books, nothing. All right. But
1: for a line of digests, you would need at least three creative teams.
0: Oh, one Charles Soleil and one. uh, (laughs) Who's like, who's super fast? Who's. Who's like super fast and not working on an ongoing right now of Mark Bagley or something? See, it has to
1: be someone who is on the one hand available, on the other hand good enough to draw attention, but on the third hand, and I can't stress enough how critical this is, it has to be someone who knows how to write for an all-ages audience. Not everyone can. Not everyone who's working in the industry today has that capacity to think, okay, maybe don't write about the violent rape of this character because you're aiming for all ages, maybe. Don't do the deep angst that you would somewhere else. And there are creators, Tom, that you and I think very highly of who would never in a million years suggest that they write all ages. I don't want to see a Tom King all ages book.
0: Alish Kotz, Star Wars.
1: There you go. Alish Kotz, All Ages, Star Wars. Ages 8 and up. (laughs)
0: Trumps <laughs> to traumatizing all readers. <laughs> I, I love Alaskan. I love. Uh, we'll talk about it later. Anything else in terms of uh, news? Uh,
1: no, just I wish the IDW creative team's luck. It's a popular franchise. If they can do better with it than Marvel has, more power to them.
0: Shall we go on straight to the solicits then? Sure. Previews. And nothing for Marvel for me because, like you said, I'm t- I'm a bit tired. I'm like, it's all secret empires and secret wars and secret secrets, and I'm tired, I'm tired. I'm with you there,
1: burnt out completely, but I do have one footnote. X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold, which are the flagship titles of Resurrection, lest we forget, tie into Secret Empire at issues 7 and 8. Ha <laughs> ha These books cannot catch a break. We're not going to talk about the Arty and thing because it's old news and he's gone anyway. But these books are just doomed. The headlining titles for the X-Men renewal are tying in to a Steve
0: Rogers-Nick Spencer secret empire event. There you go. DC. There are actually two things that interest me. One is a reprint and one is something new. I'll start with the reprint, uh, Bad Girl, Stephanie Brown, Volume 1, it's a new printing of the first half of the Brian Q. Miller, Lee Garbett, uh, Trevor Scott run of uh, Stephanie Brown as Bad Girl, which a great, great young superhero series, one of the top for me in, in terms of like DC doing young adult superheroes, it's in the top three along with Blue Beetle and let's say, I don't know, Young Justice or Impulse if you want to go solo characters. The first arc is a bit shaky. They're chills trying to find their footing and they have to justify why suddenly Stephanie Brown is bad girl and Cassandra is just like, well, I don't want to be bad girl now. Throw away the cave and just walk away from the page. And all the readers are like, what are you doing? But when it when it finds its footing, it becomes like a really great, fun series. Uh, the second half is even better. Have you read it? Have I read it? No, no, I don't think I have. In the second after there is some great great stuff like an issue where she teams up with Supergirl and they fight 29 Draculas, not vampires specifically <laughs> 29 Draculas that are that sprang out from the screen doing a Dracula movie marathon. so it's all like different versions of Dracula. So you have like classic black and white Dracula and, and, oh, uh, cool. and like you know, Dracula and tragic and race vampire Dracula. Like, oh, my pain. You don't know my like, <laughs> pain as they try to stab him. And there's wow. an issue where she visits uh, the UK and teams up with the Knight from, uh, and the Squire from Knight and Squire. And it's all like jokey Beatles references all the way. It's, it's a really fun series and I highly recommend it. Uh, the other thing is a curio for me. American Way, Those Above and Those Below, number one. Written by John Ridley and art by... Uh, George S. Genti, have you read the first American Way series? Are you the eating- name rings a bell, but I
1: don't okay. remember it, it. was an
0: eight-issue mini that came out roundabout civil war, I believe, like 2007-2008. And it wasn't connected to the DC Universe. It was America during the civil rights era. And they have superheroes, but in that world, all the superheroes are A, manufactured by the government... And B are mostly used in arranged battles to inspire people. So all the villains are also working for the government. And they mostly set up the fights as like public display of, Oh, look, here goes those heroes to inspire us. But the actual metaphor of the series, the actual like heavy plot is completely unrelated to that. It's about the divide between the superhero group, the prime superhero group, because the new member is a black man. Uh... No, no, no. and here's the thing John Ridley he's the writer of 12 Years a Slave oh. the award winning 12 Years a Slave right the Oscar winner John Ridley so oh the... that John Ridley yeah. holy crap so when the movie came out I said well obviously they're gonna reprint the book and it took them I think like 6 months from when the movie came out till the book was in reprint and now uh, 3 years later 2 years later after 12 Years a Slave they're doing a sequel series to what happens to the character's after the first major story. To be fair, I really liked 12 Years a Slave. The script, I felt, wasn't the strongest part of it. I liked the directing and the acting more, but you're an Oscar when you know, what I'm going to tell you about writing a movie. It was a very curious series because, like I said, the big problem is they have a very unique, interesting setup where the heroing is manufactured, but it's not cynical. Like, it's not like the government is saying, oh, we'll fool the public. They're just saying, you know, we need to give people something to believe in. And those icons will help them believe in themselves after the war and after uh, economic breakdown and what have you. Yeah, but then the whole racial angle feels unrelated to that. So it's like two different stories, two different ideas that Ridley had mashed together in a way that sort of kind of works, but not completely. It's a very curious affair, and I think I'll have to read that issue just to see what he's going to do with it next. Anything from DC for you? Not a one. Okay. Uh, image, yes. So, Moonstruck number one.
1: This is by Grace Ellis, Kate Leff, and Shay Beagle. Now, this is interesting. We're talking about the co-creator of Lumberjanes here, which is funny because my first impression of the solicitation text, which describes this world with fantasy creatures and a lesbian protagonist and her girlfriend, and there's this magical mystery, this is a boom book.
0: I'm not sure what it's doing at Image. Well, I thought, oh, it's a Shudder sister series. I don't know when I read the solicitor. Oh, Shudder! It's a world where monsters and people live together, and there's the heroine in in Shudder. Yes, she's uh, she's either lesbian or bisexual. I don't recall right now. Uh, Well,
1: to be fair, I think Shudder maybe takes itself a little more seriously. Oh, yeah.
0: Shudder takes itself. It's a very serious series, Shudder. The preview art for
1: Moonstruck does make it seem like it's a bit more cartoony, a bit more lighthearted, which I appreciate. I'm I'm fine with that. But it did have me wondering, like, we're talking about two creators who have had arguably their greatest successes at Boom, and they took this book to
0: Image. Maybe Image is trying to sort of develop its own... Well, A, it's good for Image to have something which is not, as we've discussed before, two-word adult-aimed science fiction title, right? And B, as far as I know, and it's just from, you know, hearing from around people, not a lot of people talk money directly, image contracts are better. Then boom, I can believe that. As I think we've discussed about it before, with image, you take a chance with everything that you do because you can lose money on it, but if you make money, you make all of the money. And boom is like, you you have a pillow, right? If the book doesn't sell a lot... Well, you know, Boom loses some money, but you're okay. But if the book makes money, Boom wants some of the money to itself. Well, it might also be that Image, you know, yes, these are
1: creator-owned books and the profits go to the creators. It may be possible that Image is looking for something on the level of Lumberjanes, to have a Lumberjanes-like success where they can approach the all-ages market.
0: They have they have that uh, new graphic novel series, since we've talked about Shudder, by... Uh, What's her name? De Luca? I don't remember. The artist of Shutter? She has a new graphic novel series that she writes. Uh, the first one called Afar came out just last month and I've read it it's, it's not great as far as I'm concerned, but I can see why other people would like it. So
1: it's interesting. Like I'm willing to give it a try. I do acknowledge that time to face the facts: there is a generation of readers that's younger than me, and not every book that comes out is for me. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I'll try it regardless. You know, Lumberjanes. Uh, I acknowledge and respect its success. It doesn't appeal to me specifically as a reader, but that's my business. You know, that doesn't take anything away from Ellis and Stevenson. And if Ellis wants to pair up with Kate Leff and do a series like that at Image, I'll at least give it a try. Anything else from Image for you? Uh, two other items. Okay. So this is an interesting one. Sacred Creatures Number 1 by Klaus Janssen and Pablo Raimondi. Pablo Raimondi is not the writer on this book. Now, how is that for a trip, right? We're talking about a legend in the industry, Klaus Janssen, who for years and years and years has had his name associated with some of the most iconic
0: books in the business. Yeah, but DC and Marvel only, this is his first creator own work? That seems unlikely, but on the other hand... Maybe, I don't know, maybe he had something from Epic back in the day, but in the last... 15 years with the big independent revolution and the new image and all those companies coming into the market. I think that's the first time I heard Klaus Jensen, A, as a writer and B, working with a company that's not the big two. To be frank, the solicitation text read
1: as incredibly ambitious because it's talking about uh, there's this vast conspiracy that dates back to the beginning of time. And I'm like, Klaus, maybe don't start at the beginning of time on your first tryout. Maybe something a little like smaller scale, just for your first attempt. And they're not.
0: They're not doing a smaller scale. Have you seen the number of pages? Oh my god! Sixty-six pages, first issue.
1: Yeah. Well, this has happened a couple of times with Image in the past, right? The Monsters was the same way.
0: Well, yeah, that, that was also very ambitious. Usually, when they want to do bigger, they do it like a double size. Like uh, Paper Girls was forty-eight pages. Royal City forty-eight pages. Sixty-six is. Jumping into deep, deep water from the get-go, that's a huge investment for your first issue.
1: It can be. I think even... uh Wasn't the Dying and the Dead triple-sized?
0: It felt like it.
1: It certainly felt like it, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, so it, I, I actually kind of like this process. Like, if financially, you are required at some point, you just have to. There's no way around it. It has to be four ninety nine. dollars 99 It also bypasses the first issue problem that a lot of these indie titles have where they don't necessarily do enough in the first issue to get the reader hooked. If your issue is triple-sized, you're probably not going to have that issue. You're not going to have that problem with the with the text, right? You have more than enough space to put out everything you want to put out and bring the readers for more. And also, it's Appropriate to the price. I i can't disagree with that.
0: Uh what's the other thing for, for the that? other
1: thing is now this is a curio. It's not something that I'm actually gonna pick up, but it's interesting that it's here. Mage the Hero Denied number zero. Written and drawn by Matt Wagner. Now, speaking of unexpected turns at Image, Matt Wagner is doing the third and final book of Mage. This is a series that started in 1984. The first book ended in 1986. Second one started in 97. I don't know what is going on with Matt Ragnar because he is this very, very talented writer who I have appreciated for many years. But it's not like he's been keeping busy writing Spider-Man for the last 15 years and did not have time to go back to Mage. Even, you know, he hasn't even done all that much of Grendel lately. So I don't know if he's just been like on a beach somewhere uh, and just enjoying retirement and then woke up one day and said, oh yeah, I never actually finished that trilogy. Well, he's
0: also an artist. Maybe he's just doing illustration work or concept art, doing things besides comics that pay more than comics. For 20 years? Uh, no, it hasn't been 20 years. The second book of Mage was 1997. No, but self-owned work is always a trump in the pre-new image era. Self-owned genre work has always been a problem because you never know if you're going to have enough money to sustain yourself. Straight Bullets took, what, 15 years break before, before it came back?
1: Well, that was different. Straight Bullets wasn't ongoing. It wasn't, uh, I mean, Mage was marketed. Again, like, it goes back to what you promise your readers when you get started. Mage, from the very beginning, Wagner said, it's a trilogy. It's a trilogy now that has officially lasted 40 years. I never gravitated towards Mage the way I did towards Grendel for various reasons, but it is interesting that it is starting up again and that it's starting up again at Image because the main
0: publisher that I remember Wagner being associated with was Dark Horse. Now, here's the thing. Dark Horse right now has that Once and Future Queen. So he he saw that as a solicitation, he was, wait a minute, modern day day Arthur, that's my thing, how dare, I'll show those whippersnappers what for. Whoops, well listen, if it got him off his rocker and back to work, I'm I'm glad of it. Balsamic Sketchbook and Art Collection, that's an art book by the great, great uh, Giannis, I'm not going to pronounce it right, Milionanis, he's the guy who did Prophet with Brandon Graham for a long time, and right now he's doing G.A. Joe, of all things. (laughs) Uh, The very good uh, new ongoing G.I. Joe series from IDW And he's got a very manga-inspired Super kinetic science fiction detail-loving style So if you're an art fan, I highly recommend checking it out In terms of weird things coming back You you gravitated towards Mage The Other Side Special Edition hardcover The what? The Other Side Special Edition hardcover it's in a hardcover, large size reprint of the Jason Aaron Cameron Stewart Vertigo series. You remember that one? It was a five issue mini about the Vietnam War, seen from both sides of the conflict. Oh cosplay. my God,
1: that's old! I don't
0: know. It wasn't the first thing that Aaron wrote. It's the one that made him like notable. I think it was nominated for an Eisner. And this is coming out from Image. Yeah, I- Image is just. Buying the rights for all those things that Vertigo used to do. Because you remember, Prince of Cats was originally a Vertigo series. And then Image republished that. That is really weird. Image is like, oh, all those great classics that you did that aren't in print right now. Weak!
1: They snatched Criminal back from Icon.
0: <laughs> right, right. It's like, it's ours now.
1: Does that not strike you? as kind of weird, though.
0: Oh, uh, it strikes me. <laughs> well, if this book in print and you haven't read it, it's great. It's a really good war story and cameron stewart art is amazing in it yeah i'm assuming they'll also put it up digitally yes 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 and it's large size so you know super great uh generation gone this is the new Alishkot andrew lima rajo series and no no
1: no and
0: as i said i knew you wouldn't like it
1: fool me once shame on me Fool me twice, shame on you.
0: And as usual for Mr. Cot, it's a super ambitious near future science fiction series about uh, teenagers with black holes and stuff. <laughs> That's going to be the name of his uh, biography. Uh, alish Cot with black holes and stuff. My life.
1: No, what'll happen is he'll call it teenagers with black holes and it'll get banned for the wrong reasons. Because people will assume things about those titles that are not true.
0: Even I would admit that the last few Aleshcott books weren't as much up to snuff. Uh, material, I really like that it got cancelled after four issues. So I really like what it could have been and then what it was. Wolf, I have no idea what happened in Wolf. Not in terms of it's being weird, in terms of I don't really care about these characters. There were eight issues and I couldn't connect to anybody there. Zero is the thing that I hold to my heart, and I know you hate it, and I know that other people hate it, and I understand completely why they hate it with, like, burning passion.
1: Well, be specific. The ending is what we hate when you're talking about Zero, which is that you're talking about, like, not connecting to characters. I did connect to every single character in Zero up until a certain point, so... He did have the ability to create sympathetic, interesting characters. But you're talking about material and wolf, and I'll remind you that in the surface, characters were similarly,
0: like, just, I don't know what their deal is, and I don't care. I really like the first three issues of the surface, issue four, again. The problem with with Cot, for my money, is that he's doing stuff in his career about 15 years too early. Grant Morrison and Ellen Moore are doing stuff which is very abstract and weird now because they took the time to build their public cachet, their cultural cachet, and they can do whatever they want now and people will come to it with some sort of leniency, like, oh yes it's weird, but I'll try it anyway, because it's Ellen Moore because it's Grant Morrison. Yeah, that's an excellent observation. Grant Morrison w- couldn't and wouldn't have done nameless in the late 80s, in the early 90s. He had to wait 20 years to do something so out there. Same with Ellen Moore and, with, and Promethea. You had to do 20 years of stuff that's Yes, its own thing, but communicable to the general public before doing a 36-issue lecture about Kabbalah, And Ale Scott just waited two years and then said, I'm there. I'll do the most out-there thing that I can.
1: A big part of that, I think, you're absolutely right, it goes to when you, as a creator... Want to be self-indulgent, right? You want to explore themes that are really only interesting to you and to put these statements out and you don't really care what the reception is. You're really only interested in, I want to explore these ideas. I want to do it for me, whatever. Readers will be willing to tolerate that up to a point proportionate to what your cash is, right? Even today, you know, we have criticized Alan Moore in the recent past for being, you know, my Victoriana, let me show you it, where his comics are not so much stories as lectures and we don't appreciate it. But the thing is, this is Alan Moore, right? We are willing to, if not directly read his stuff and be, you know, a- and engage with him on that level. We're not necessarily sweeping him under the rug either because well, he, I'm not, I'm, he did it. Here's the work. thing.
0: I'm not sweeping Alishcott under the rug. I like this sort of stuff. I like that he's trying, even if he usually doesn't succeed. Because when you try to something this epic and bizarre, well, you'll often fail. But I understand completely why other people are just like, no, 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 no. It's not one of those things where I'm. With something like Chu, I say, I love it. And if you say, and if you tell me you don't like it, I'll look at you funny. Because what's there not to like? With Alesh I'm like, yes, I like it. I understand completely and utterly why you don't want to hear about it even. And that's a perfect
1: parallel, right? Like if John Layman now decided that his next series was going to talk about some niche thing that really only interested him, I feel like his readership, his, his fan base, would be like, okay, we don't really get this. We're not really into it, but you go ahead and do it. Right. And we're not going to say anything about it. After
0: 60 issues of Chu, we're willing to let it slide. He put
1: out Chu and you know, Chu's not the only thing that he's done. He does have a certain history of putting out for lack of a better term people pleasers right books that people enjoy and can go back two years later and say isn't this fantastic and now yeah if he wants to indulge himself that's fine Alish cult doesn't really have that the best thing that he ever had on his CV in terms of the amount of people that actually enjoyed what he was writing was that Secret Avengers run with the talking bomb and that was a long time ago and even then it didn't set anything like it didn't exactly change anything
0: it's, it's one of my favorite Marvel series of the 21st century (laughs)
1: great but who talks about it now yeah granted that's because of marvel that's not because of code but that's still the the end result of that is you know that run came
0: out and it's five six volumes ago that's it okay and the uh, the last thing for image there was one other thing uh by chance or providence it's a collection of free one shots by the great becky clunan written and drawn that she did several years ago so there's wolves the mire and the matter i have not read them yet my friend and uh sometime guest of the show of has read them at the time when they came out and told me they're amazing they only came out digitally originally so now she puts them all in one like one nice trade paperback 15 bucks 120 pages and when becky cluing is drawing i'm there when her hand is on the on the pen on the pencil whatever i'm there and she's a pretty good writer also so yeah sure I will say, I mean, of the three, I think I've only
1: read uh, The Meyer, but The Meyer was phenomenal. Oh, great, great. So I have your approval as well. Yeah, she, I mean, it's Becky Clunan. You know, she's one of those creators who at a certain point, this is also like, you know, in contrast to Alice Code, this is a creator who has made a name for herself for being consistently good and consistently engaging to the point that when they say, okay, here are some Becky Cloonan one shots from however long ago that you've never read, you can still make a certain assumption about the level of their quality. I was lucky to read the Meyer as like a standalone text. I thought it was amazing. So the prospect of more of that? Sure. Anything from Dark Horse for you? Yes. Two items, neither of which I'm directly recommending as a reader, but I think are interesting that they're here. Gru, Play of the Gods number 1, which is a four-part miniseries by Sergio Aragones, Mark Evanier, and John Ersek, with colors, I think, by Tom Luth. Uh,
0: Gru is back. Well, he hasn't really left. Uh, it says... well, what's your
1: take on Gru?
0: Uh, I, I like Gru at, at a portion. I won't read it, you know, day in and day out. But whenever I have a chance to put my hand on a Groot collection or a Groot serial, I'm sure. It's like, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, Sergio Argonas is super duper extra mega whatever talented cartoonist. Groot is his comfort zone. It's the thing that he knows what to do and he does it and he's good at it. Uh, It's a sequel to... uh, There was another Groot serial with the word gods in it just last year. What was the name of this one, you said?
1: I don't know. Frey
0: of the Gods? Battle of the Gods? Possibly, yeah. uh, Frey of the Gods, I think, was the name. So there was a Frey of the Gods last year.
1: And now there's Play of the Gods. Okay, that's fine. Uh, One other thing, and this... Well, th- this connects to something that we talked about previously. So Zodiac Starforce is back for another four-part mini. Cries of the Fire Prince. This is with Kevin Panetta, Paulina Ganuccio, and Jen Bartel. This is another example of what I was talking about earlier as a book that is not for me per se, but I'm glad that it's back. It's clearly appealing to a generation of readers younger than me, and I encourage them to check it out.
0: Uh We should mention The Calder Omnibus. It's the Calder Trilogy by Paul Tobin and Juan Friera. We reviewed issue number one of the second miniseries. Yeah. And I think our third or fourth episode. You remember? It was a super creepy, super well-constructed horror series with great, great art by Juan Friera. He's doing green air right now. And it's so strange to me to think about him as a superhero, as a superhero artist. Because he's a great horror artist. Just looking at his drawings... Makes you, like, shiver on the inside and on the outside. Yeah, it's kind of and, a waste. Yeah, and, and the plot, in case you don't know or don't remember, is about this guy who was a former mental patient who has the power to cure people of their madness, which here their madness is literally caused by demonic entities, which don't approve of him curing people, and they go to the real world to try and take revenge on him and his caretaker slash girlfriend. Yeah, the very, very creepy visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, IDW? Uh, nothing for me. Uh, there's one weird thing. Uh, it's from Europe Comic, which is the IDW imprint that does, well, European comics translated to English. Right now, they're mostly known for doing the translation of quarto uh, Maltese. And they have a new series right now. Jerome K. Jerome Block, Volume 1, The Shadow Killer. And it's apparently... A European detective series for young adults, and they don't explain anywhere in the solicitations, in the text, in Wikipedia, why it's named after the great British comedic writer Jerome K. Jerome. You know Jerome K. Jerome, right? He did uh, Three Gentlemen on a Boat to Say Nothing of the Dog. Okay, and I have no idea why it's called Jerome K. Jerome Block. It doesn't say that he stars in it. It's not based on any of his books. They just like inserted his name randomly. <laughs> I, I, it's like Ernest Hemingway's Volume 1, The Shadow Killer, which is not a featuring uh, an historical visage of the guy or based on any of his books. That is bizarre. I, I think I'm going to read it because they have a very high standard. They don't translate anything. They only translate like... Top of the line, best reviewed series, but it's just weird.
1: Oni Press. Oh yes. As soon as I saw this, I'm like, I gotta call Tom. I gotta
0: tell him. Uh, you you would assume I wouldn't know, Sean. I, I'm I'm insulted.
1: <laughs> Yet another graphic novel from our darling Kyle Star.
0: Kill them all, uh, and that's gonna do to the '90s what uh, Sex Castle did to the '80s action movies, which pretty much it's all bring it on. Though. Bring it on! It is
1: with Luigi Anderson another wild kill fest. Uh, this time with a like a, a male and female protagonist working together. Uh, go right ahead, Mister Starks. You know what you're doing. Go for it.
0: Yeah, I, I love I love Kyle Starks. My heart, my heart goes for this series. Anything else for money for you?
1: Nope, that's about it. And boom also, like when I say that's it, it's like no new releases catch my eye, but the the ones that are already ongoing and I'm enjoying, I'm still enjoying them.
0: So shall we go on to the reviews? Let's now what do you got? Uh, we've talked before the show, uh dear listeners, this is the first time where we each chose our issues randomly and we had no idea what the other chose, and as a result <laughs> none of us has read the things that the other has read. So it's gonna be a bit one-sided. Which is fine. Well, I'm going to start with the Marvel series. After all the kicking we did to Marvel, they actually released something semi-decent. Nick Fury number one. This is a new ongoing, but as we've said, Marvel. So, five issues, six issues. I Take hope. that with a pound of salt. Yes. Uh, it's by uh, your old friend and mine, uh, James Robinson. Were we not just talking about him last episode, right? Yeah, but it's here's the thing. It's decent because... He's not doing a lot of the heavy lifting, most of the heavy lifting in this issue, and by all accounts from the previews in this series, is done by the artist, Uh, ACO, or Echo, however you pronounce his name, the guy who did Midnighter.
1: Yes, very good.
0: Uh, So the big point of the series, this is the uh, younger Nick Fury, the guy who looks like Samuel L. Jackson, but they cast him in the style right now of the 1960s, like psychedelic Nick Fury. It's done in the style of the classic Jim Strangler, like super psychedelic, and it's mostly visual atop of the art. And the plot in this issue is super simple. Nick Fury has to infiltrate a Hydra-controlled casino, and he does so with his super special gadgets. And then there's this enemy agent who's going to be a female Hydra agent who's going to be his big, apparently his big enemy for this series, however long it's going to last. And they fight a bit, and then there's like a flying car chase, and then there's a flying boat chase, and then uh, he, he succeeds, like the mission is over, issue one, he did his job. And apparently it's going to be like a series of done one missions with the ongoing plot being the fight between Fury and that particular uh, Hydra agent. In terms of plotting, it's super light, there's the job, going to this casino, steal this thing, and he does that. There are, all the complications are continuations of that plot. There's a chase scene, a fight scene, and then another chase scene.
1: Which is beneficial on the one hand, because it means that Robinson's not going to get tangled up in his own storylines the way he did with uh, Scarlet Witch. But the flip side of that is, it seems to me that...
0: It's it's style over substance, totally and utterly.
1: Which isn't gonna last very long. I mean, style over substance can keep people's attention for a limited run, but Nick Fury, I think, is being posited as a major character in the new configuration of well, the Marvel like universe. I said, it's one of those things where the
0: Marvel idea of an ongoing actually works for them, because if it's just six or eight or even twelve issues, like two arcs and done, it's fine. That's, that seems like a natural length for that type of thing. Uh, Echo's art is very, very pretty. Like And he does some really creative layouts when Nick Fury enters the casino and he uses his special devices to slowly disconnect all of the various uh, cameras and cause like a riot in the background. So he has uh, the version in order to enter the safe. It's all done in a series of panels, uh, shortcut panels. Or when he sees everything through various camera angles, he stands in the middle of a big room with a big double splash page. Most of this issue is double splashes, by the way, but it's busy double splashes. It's not just, here's he, you know, jumping and giving him a punch. or something. things happen all the time. This series is constantly on the move.
1: Right, and that has to come from Akko. Midnighter was the exact same way.
0: I will say, though, that like with Midnighter, there is a bit of a clarity problem, Here it's less of the art and I think really more of the coloring because it is like super bright, super garish, neonish, color upon color upon color. And it's one of the things where with Steranko, for all the creativity he had in the panel design and the action, he had a very standard color palette at the time, right? Most of the time. Yeah. So you can, it was very simple. So you can see what happens even though he's doing all those complicated things in the main story. And here the colors obscure things a bit. Sometimes I have to stop doing an action scene. And wait what's happening. Who, who's in what angle here. But you know what. And as far as new Marvel launches go. This one that catches the eye immediately. And it has its own personality. And it makes an effort. I don't know if they're going to let it uh, keep on. But it makes an effort to not be part of the main Marvel Universe. There's no guest appearance by Spider-Man or the X-Men. Nobody, It's Hydra, but nobody talks about the Secret Empire. Thank God. It's just... It could take place in the 60s, for all we know. It could be, I don't know, Nick Fury, Max, or whatever. You read this thing, and if you like it, you like it for what it is. You don't want it being dragged into all of those crazy, stupid crossovers. <laughs> and yeah. I'm happy that Robinson is just... Letting the book breathe, that he's not trying to overcomplicate stuff for now, and just letting this story be what it wants to be. Okay, so I've got World Reader
1: number one from Aftershock Comics. This is by Jeff Loveness, Juan Doe, and Rachel Deering. And this is a book that. In my opinion, succeeded on every level. The high concept is, it's sort of an interesting attempt to answer the Fermi paradox, right? The idea of, you know, if the universe is so huge and life has evolved on other planets, then where the hell is everybody? And the answer that this issue suggests is a quote from one of the, the protagonists of the series where she says, we weren't alone, but we are now. So something has been killing entire worlds, right? Sarah, the protagonist, is part of a team of astronauts who are moving from planet to planet and constantly finding just these ruined civilizations. No bodies, no organic matter of any kind, but just everywhere they go, these civilizations have been destroyed. The unique thing is that Sarah, in addition to being an astronaut, is also a psychic, meaning that she can communicate with the dead. Now, her team is very skeptical about that, obviously, until she does manage to communicate with one lone spirit on this world that they're exploring. And even the spirits are gone. And the spirit gets eaten up by something else that's out there. We have like several layers that are working At the same time, and I think creating a really, really textured and interesting first issue. You have this set up to this mystery, right? What is killing all of these worlds? What's destroying these civilizations? You have a relatively small cast, right? It's Sarah, her commander, who's very skeptical towards her supposed abilities. And you have her friend who supports her, isn't entirely sold that she can do what she claims she can do. But is like, well, if you can, then great. If you can't, that's fine. I, I like you anyway. And you have this antagonist that is, on the one hand, not clearly defined, but enough of what they are capable of is communicated in the issue that you get the threat, right? So often we say, like, one of the problems with the first issues is it's not clear what the conflict is. Here it is. It's very obvious, right? There is this figure that is both annihilating planetary civilizations and also consuming their souls somehow, right? It's... it's, Stripping all life and afterlife from a given world. And the only person who can read this world and try to figure out what's going on is Sarah.
0: Hmm.
1: Very, very interesting. Uh, it's it's an ongoing or a limited series? To the best of my knowledge, this seems to be an ongoing. But, you know, take that for what it's worth. I don't I don't know one way or another. Uh, but I am here for the duration. I want to read more of this. I'm very curious.
0: I like the characters.
1: I like the central conceits. I'm on board.
0: Loveness is a name, he has history, but I can't from the top of my head name one thing that he's done.
1: He did the five-issue Groot series before the current
0: one. Oh, right, right.
1: Where Groot, it starts off with Groot in a wrestling ring.
0: Yes, I remember the first issue was good. I haven't read the rest of it, but the first issue was good. They were actually pretty good. Interesting. It's always nice to see a new publisher just taking a hold of the market and stating its claim and... Being serious about things.
1: Aftershock and Black Mask, I think, are benefiting at this point from being so far off the beaten path that they are able to do all of these
0: offbeat and unusual storylines. with. It's very image from what you're telling me, and a lot of Aftershock titles have been very image-esque.
1: I feel like if this had been an image book, it would have been maybe a little more cerebral because image is trying from the looks of their current lineup, they are trying to go more towards not necessarily hard science fiction in like you have to know physics in order to understand the story. More towards heavy techno babble. Something like Odyssey, right? Where it is very important to have like the terminology and to explain everything and something like World Reader, you know, they never explain how these people got from Earth to here. Are they astronauts? Are they on faster than light travel? Is this the far future? You don't know. They just show up on this planet and they, they start exploring. So I think that's might be part of the advantage. It could, again, like, it's me ascribing
0: an overall design philosophy for image, which may not be. They don't, they don't really have it. Their design philosophy is, can you sell a book? Do you want to make this book? We'll publish this book. Please sell this book. But more of this
1: is exactly what I'm looking for. So it's not that I can even complain, right? Whether it's... And honestly, whether it's Image or Aftershock or Black Mask or Boom does not make any difference to me.
0: Yeah, now, uh, because next review that I'm going to do is going to disprove your idea of Image as a cerebral company for thoughtful science fiction. Uh, Plastic, number one, written by uh, Dog Wagner, who I don't know from Adam, with art by Daniel Hillard with coloring by the great Laura Martin. It's a five issue mini, I believe, about a guy who used to work for the company, possibly the CIA, possibly the NSA, uh, and has been out of service for years and now spends his time with his girlfriend, uh, basically murdering people along the US, road tripping and murdering people. And also his girlfriend is a plastic doll. She is a plastic sex doll. Oh, dear. And she's kidnapped. Her, his girl, his plastic girlfriend is kidnapped <laughs> by a mob boss who forces him to, to like kill in his name. Like, you know, do, do your job for me because you've hurt my son. You, on a, on a road trip, he basically almost murdered this mobster's son and now he has to work for this mobster as a killer for hire. You know what? I really liked it. It's like, it's a very dirty feeling book. It's a book that kind of makes you want to take a shower after you read it. It's not doing it by mistake. It aims to make you feel like that. It's If it would have been dirtier in terms of the art, if it would have been bloodier and gorier, it almost could have been an Avatar book. It's not quite there. It's like it's almost there. It, Which I think is good for you because you, you, you pretty much hate Avatar books, right?
1: Um, I'm not a fan of the... Blood and guts and more guts. The problem with Avatar is it is always so transparent that they do it just to be gratuitous. It's the gratuitous thing that I have a problem with. Like, if you absolutely have to have a damn rape scene, if that is, like, the cornerstone of your storyline and you know that you have to make a comment on it and it is so important, fine, go ahead. If you're doing it just to show, like, and then this lady gets raped and then she, uh, she has a Cthulhu baby and then let's have a shot of her vagina exploding, sure... Uh, why not? Let's have some viscera flying around. Like, yeah, okay. So you're
0: just doing it to shock people. So this one is not that. And it has a strange, like, sense of humor. He, our serial killer protagonist, goes into this grocery store and he has a very funny conversation with the grocer saying, Oh, uh, the credit card machine is so slow. Feel free to browse at our magazines, even the one wrapped in blasting because If the owner doesn't care about getting us a new machine, as far as I'm concerned, you can take whatever entertainment you like. And he buys like a brush and he says, do you have maybe another brush? She doesn't like this brush. And obviously the grocer has no idea what he's talking about. He's going to clean like his plastic girlfriend. Just a very odd series. I had no idea what it was about when I started reading it. I just said, well, it's an image number one by people I don't know. I'll give it a shot. And when the violence started, it felt so weirdly out of place for what happened before that you just sort of have to laugh because it's so over the top, almost to an Eric Powell level. And I, it's it's not the greatest thing ever, but I really like it. We don't even see scenes where he imagines her responding. There's It's never like a Ventriloquist from the Batman. It's just him talking to this plastic doll, really lovingly, promising he, he'll take her see Rome. He just, he browses at the bookshop and he sees a book about touring Rome and he says... We'll go to Rome. Obviously not by plane because people, they won't allow you on a plane. We'll buy a boat. Wow. It's just a lovely little book about a mad killer and his plastic loved one. Well, I
1: hope they're very happy together. So I read, speaking of being completely off the beaten path, Failsafe number one. This is by F.J. DeSanto, Todd Farmer, and Federico Delocchio from Vault Comics.
0: Oh, there, there's another new company. I heard many good things about their stuff. Haven't read anything yet. Not from this one.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, so the premise is that uh, a man has been hired by the United States government to hunt down nano-enhanced rogue soldiers. After he killed the last one 10 years ago and finished the job, he adopted that last soldier's daughter, raised her as his own. 10 years later, there's a whole new bunch of weirdos who are using perfected nanotechnology to trigger other sleepers all over the country. And it is dreadful, Tom. Dreadful. The problem lies wholly with the creative team here, because what they do here is completely inadvertently, in my opinion, they... Demonstrate how cliche these elements have become by importing them wholesale. And what do I mean by that? Right? The idea of nanomachines enhancing the human body, sleeper programs, the one guy with the guns who will save the day but has to be dragged out of retirement, right? He has to be blackmailed, you come out of retirement and help us, or else. These have become such stock tropes at this point that if you're gonna use them. At the very least, you have to put your own touch on them. You have to change something, some detail to make it your own. And what Decento and Farmer do is just cut and paste these concepts. There's no originality here. There's no attempt to break the mold in any way. The protagonist's name is John Ravane. What? Say again? John Ravane. R-A-V-A-N-E.
0: Oh. I mean... That's not a good name. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that, they might as well have just called him John Revenge at least that would have been but that would be a farce and that
0: would you, be- you remember you remember that movie After Earth Cypher Rage played by what's his name Will Smith there you go name named C- the character so I mean <laughs> two years later he would play Deadshot and that would not be the stupidest named character that he ever played
1: Not even slightly. That just goes to prove the point, right? Not a spark of originality here. Any other interpretation of this story, any other variation, would have at least thought, okay, how am I not being cookie cutter here? And for Vault Comics specifically, right, like you're saying, they're making a reputation for themselves by getting original concepts. This is not one of them, you know? And if you are going to be so completely paint-by-numbers... Then it'll appeal to someone. There's always an audience for the old fashioned tripe reheated and sent out again. There's always people there for that. I just don't think that this has anything to recommend to it besides that. And even then, like, if all you're looking for is a story about a bunch of guys running around shooting each other and sleeper agents and nanotechnology, just read a Warren Ellis book. Any Warren Ellis book
0: at all? Just take like random Warren Ellis pages from random books and hook them together. Oh, I, here's one from Mech and here's one from Storm Warning, talking of Storm Warning, and here's one from Red, and oh, I've just borrowed two pages from The Authority. What's this? Is Astonishing X-Men five issue run? Yes, I <laughs> will. I'll just take. You remember that one, the X Men with Bluetooth, I, I believe it was.
1: Um, ghost boxes or something it was yeah, called. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, global frequency, sure, why not? Just somebody. We have some- seen all
1: of this before. I, I,
0: I, you know, that's a really great idea. Uh, doing something like the cut-up method to Warren Ellis comics.
1: How would you tell the difference from issue to issue, though? <laughs> oh, only work on. when you can di- when you can distinguish between them. Here, it's like well, the art, obviously.
0: The Warren Ellis Randomizer, I really like it. <laughs> I'm sure he would approve. Somebody should write a, a Warren Ellis Randomizer program. He would share it on his Twitter. Share it? He's probably using it now. <laughs> but- <laughs> I don't have to write
1: anymore. Somebody did it for me. His readers can't tell the difference. So, yeah... Uh- Basically, thumbs down for failsafe. Don't bother. It is nothing that you haven't seen a hundred times already. From
0: from failure to greatness, Sean. I have read greatness. I have seen the poetry and the beauty that is the Shaolin cowboy who'll stop the rain number one, written and drawn and many other things by the great, great uh, Jeff Darrow with colors by the almost as great Dave Stewart. It's a four-issue mini from Dark Horse. It's uh, both a direct continuation of the previous uh, Shaolin Cowboy series. It starts about 20 seconds after the previous one ended with our uh, brave protagonist lying face down in the mud, nearly dying after being gorged by a horde of zombies. The previous four issues were basically one giant super detailed fight scene. And this is a direct uh, continuation of both it and the original Shaolin Cowboy series which was 2007, I believe. Uh, The plot here that even though he appeared to die, he was just very badly wounded, and he's trying to, like, recuperate himself, cure both his body and his soul from all the trauma that he's endured throughout the years. And at the same time, an old enemy, uh, who's a crab, who's a talking crab that controls a a violent gang of neo-Nazis, uh, is gonna take revenge upon him. It's a great, great series, and it's—I mean, if it's Darrow, then it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's Darrow. It's beautiful, but it's also a masterwork of pacing because there are many scenes here which are not related to the main plot, which are just like Darrow's favored aside of cool jokes. The first three pages are a gang of vultures flying above the Shaolin Cowboy's body, discussing whether or not he's still alive and should they approach him and should they not. And obviously one of them decides to go right ahead and... Well, you know what happens, right? Of course. And then there's like a two-page scene of him... uh, Sending his soul to battle with the Guardian of the Hellgate. To like save his soul. Oh, you should come with me. You were this close to death. I must take you now. Which are things that are not technically related to the main plot. But are flowing so effortlessly... Into the story. And the story itself never feels like it's just stopping. The jokes are part of the story. And are all related to this strange thematic narrative that Darrow is doing here. Which is we have this guy who's almost a saint. Like he's a really good guy. And he wants to save people. And he doesn't do harm by anybody. And he's basically living in the crappest crap world possible. Everywhere he goes, he's surrounded by the lowest common denominator of American trash culture. Like, he walks down the street and he kneels to pray, and these disgusting dude bros just throw beer cans at him for no reason. And there's a truck passing by, and it's a family of, like, extreme Christians who call in their favorite radio station to ask about, if Jesus had a gun, which gun would he use? And obviously, the radio host answers, oh, son... Jesus is a gun. Of course. Of course. It's like, it's this guy trying to be good in basically the crappest crap world possible. And what's amazing is, knowing Jeff Darrow and the time it takes him to draw, he started writing it and drawing it in about 2008 or so. Like, no, not 2008. 2013, I think, the previous series ended. And it feels so disgustingly zeitgeist. It's just amazing. It's like, Here's the worst of the worst, and you're going to try to survive it, and you're going to try to be connected to your inner self, connected to something true and zen in this falling, disgusting world. And it's odd. It's like really, really honest and true about these things, even though it takes the form of comedy violence, of a Shaolin cowboy versus an evil crab and his family of evil crabs and his gang of neo-Nazis. Ah, uh, Delightful. It's it's just it's beautiful. It's one of those things that I read really and say, "Oh, this is why you make comics. You couldn't have done it in any other form. This could not have been a novel or a TV show or a goddamn movie or I don't know or a computer game. It could uh, Cowboy could only be a comic." And there's this great touches of the way movement just happens between page to page, and you don't even notice thing that happened until you follow to the next panel like you know his head get hit by a beer can and you only notice all oh, right in the previous panel because there are so many things happening somebody not even tossed just left the beer can and the kinetic energy of the car uh, driving next to him like towed it to his head and the whole scene of him sitting in the middle of the road uh, connecting to his deepest darkest soul and the guardian of hell coming to like claim your soul shouting cowboy but you know, he fights for it and he defeats the guy and the and the Guardian and the Guardian says, well, I'll have to take Samson and he just picks a random coyote and says, well, you will now serve in his stead until he'll come to hell with me. Great mix of seriousness and humor and spirituality and really dirty fun that's really hard to achieve.
1: Sounds like a real winner.
0: Oh yeah, it's my favorite of the, uh, I would almost say the year, but as we have mentioned, Rock and Demon came off last episode. <laughs> So it's, it's my second favorite of the se- series of the year so far. Uh, from the unoriginal in
1: Failsafe Number 1, I find myself with a book that is original and terrible.
0: Oh, Sean, Sean, you poor guy. I'm reading stuff that I'm enjoying all the way, and you're like, Oh, well, don't worry.
1: I'm, I'm going to end on a high note. But okay. this one specifically. Um, so this is Rose Number 1 by Meredith Finch and Ig Guara. Oh, Sean, why? At Image. Jesus, this was bad. Now, I knew going into this that Finch had a bad rap because of her run on Wonder Woman. But seeing as how I don't read Wonder Woman, I figured, well, maybe it was just, you know, some people are not compatible with DC and Marvel. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad writers. Holy crap, Tom, this issue is bad. Finch tries to create a fantasy world. Now, this is the thing that I really found irritating. Let me give you an example. So the high premise of this fantasy world is that certain people are bonded to mystical feline creatures called cats. Uh, that's cats, K-H-A-T-Z. That's what we're dealing with here. Magical creatures Mm -hmm. uh, who give their guardians great powers and then the cats are disappearing. And there's this new power that's taking over the land and this darkness is going everywhere. There's this girl named Rose who has a magic power that she's not allowed to use because she and her mother are in hiding. And then one day she goes out And goes into a pool and practices magic and comes home and guess what she finds, Tom? Her village is being burned down by the evil. And then her mother dies and her mother, of course, says, You have to run and get far away because they're coming after you! The
0: stormtroopers, Luke! The stormtroopers! They're coming after and (laughs) Maru
1: And then you cut to the evil queen, right? Who One of her uh, governors is coming to her and says, you know, oh, there's this horrible plague. People are suffering. And naturally, like the, the Queen's general, like, suffering builds character. Let the weak perish and the strong survive. This is an actual quotation. And then the Queen is like, okay, it's fine. I'll consider your request. She leaves. And then the Queen says, "Madam Grey's complaints, once amusing, have begun to bore me. Kill her. And then you see that the queen is wearing, how can I describe this in a PG-13 manner? She has a collar, high collar, and two strips of fabric that are covering exactly what you would imagine that they would cover. And that's about it.
0: So you're saying it's a 90s image book that's somehow found its way to the 2010s.
1: How did no one look at this and be like, we haven't done this since 1992? Um, It is just so bad. The dialogue is terrible, right? It's a dialogue that there's no subtlety to it. They will just say what they're thinking at any given time in the most obvious way possible. Like, oh, I sense an ancient secret power within you. No shit right like it is such bullshit like i i see now if this was how she wrote wonder woman i can understand like listen to this is a monologue from the evil queen right For years I have searched through dusty tomes, scoured the minds of countless puny wizards, all to find the key to my revenge. And finally I have succeeded. I will not allow anything to threaten that, not when I am this close to victory. My wraiths are the perfect tool, drawn to a magic that is no longer their own. Go, my children, find the source of the magic and bring it to me. And if you should encounter that fool Dante in your search, you know what to do. Way to lay it out there, Miss Finch.
0: Like that's He-Man, that's He-Man esque right there.
1: Wow, so bad. And I, you know, if it had been played for laughs, that would be one thing. If yeah, it were...
0: is, it's like if it was like Tom Siali, semi distant, like through the nineteen eighties toy commercial lens, or is
1: Darcy's katara.
0: Yeah, if it was like ironic comedy, I hate ironic distancing, but it would have at least you know softened the blow somewhat. This. It doesn't sound so good, but I'm not surprised, you know, there wasn't anything in her Wonder Woman run that made me, I haven't read a lot of it, that made me say, oh yeah, sure, I want to read more by her, and I don't think I ever heard anything else that she's done, she's written, I think, some stuff for Dynamite, I believe, but you know usually usually with image we we've discussed before the big problem is they only take people who you've seen before you would rarely be surprised to say oh this guy's an image and so for the first time in a long time we're like oh she's an image i i haven't thought about her at all how how's the art by the way i you said in terms of design it's terrible but is there the actual storytelling okay at least
1: Well, see, the thing is that Guara is known for Arkham Knight and Blue Beetle and the Ravagers, where, you know, the artwork has been fine and competent. The larger problem is just that the designs and this, again, like, I don't know if I should attribute this to Finch herself, or if this is something that Guara put in, I wouldn't say that it's Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose. You get the sense that Image has moved past that, because they used to be known as the titty imprint, and that used to be something that people mocked them for for a very long time. And they haven't been that for about as long, to be honest, if we think about it. So this book is such a throwback in that sense. Like I don't know what to make of it. It reads like something that... Had it come out in the mid-90s, even then it wouldn't have been popular. It would have been on the level of something like Lady Death, right? Where Lady Death has has never been a huge seller, but at least, you know, it's there. It's it's a lady in a bra and panties running around killing things, okay? Here she's looking for her cat, K-H-A-T. I don't...
0: (laughs) That's the level of originality we have here, right? I don't know. I just...
1: It's a problem. I mean, on its own, this book would be terrible. When you consider that it exists at the same company as Rat Queens, I'm like, why are you even here? Nobody needed you. Nobody called for you. Go away. The thing about Rose specifically is I look at it and I think this is a book that is 20 years too late. And even at the time when the industry would have been best suited for something like it, even then, it wouldn't be because it's not Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, right? Because it's not, you have to get out of here, your vagina is haunted.
0: Okay. Um, I'm going to finish my side with a trade review. Go for now, it. Now, we have a mini tradition by now of Tom reading 2000 AD classics. <laughs> <laughs> this is not it. This oh, is not okay. a 2000 AD book. But it is, however, by a pair of creators mostly known for their work with 2000 AD. And it's a semi-classic. Sean, can you guess what I'm talking about? Okay, it's by Pat Mills.
1: Oh, no, not Slain.
0: No, no, no. It's not from 2008, I said.
1: Okay, so I have no clue. I don't follow Pat Mills anymore. It's Martial Law. Martial Law?
0: You've never read Martial Law? No. Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill's Martial Law. I'm surprised. I,
1: I was sure that Why would you be surprised? Pat Mills is insane. <laughs>
0: Pat, Pat, Pat Mills, Mills was
1: Frank Miller before Frank Miller was
0: Frank Miller. Pat Mills is the good kind of insane. In case you haven't heard it, which I'm, I'm so surprised, <laughs> or even heard of it, apparently. I was sure when we just discussed it, oh, I have a surprise for you, Sean. I was sure you'd be like, oh, yes, martial law. I either like it or hate it. But you're just saying, wait, uh, what's martial law? A martial law, you say? You need
1: to understand something about like my relationship with Pat Mills is that I did start out reading his stuff at 2000 AD and at some point he went into like mother goddess phase or something and I was just okay check please I'm done. So it is entirely possible that he is still in the business but I know nothing about him.
0: He writes all the time. That that dude works. Anyway, it's um uh, the series started in the late 80s early 90s when Epic was still a thing that Marvel held. You remember it, the creator-owned sure. print that was Icon before Icon was, and it's part of those post-Watchmen, post-Dark Knight returns, like superhero deconstruction type things. But because Pet Mills is Pet Mills, it's less intellectual think pieces, even though those exist here, and more like outright hatred, like Pet Mills hate superheroes with a passion that make Garth Ennis look like a little schoolgirl. The big plot point is that in the mid 70s, while the US was starting uh, a war in South America, basically they've declared war on the whole of South America, which they call the Zone. They've developed the technology to make superhumans. And they use those superhumans as soldiers in that war, while the people who developed the power, uh, the original superheroes, basically just stayed out of it and sat at home and, you know, made money off of it. And when the war was over and all those heroes came back, most of them became insane with PTSD and they just roamed the streets of... uh, Most of the series takes place in the future San Francisco and commit crimes, super crimes. And our hero, Martial Law, is a police officer who was also one of those super soldiers and he basically kills superheroes... In order to like relive his hatred for the whole dirty establishment that created him. His catchphrase that appears in every issue is I'm a hero hunter, I wanna hunt heroes, but I never found anyone yet. Like I haven't found any hero yet. And it ran for several miniseries. The original six-issue series was which uh which is the one I've read so far, mostly dealt with him trying to prove that the public spirit, the Superman-esque First superhero is a serial killer in his spare time. And it actually has a lot of, without spoiling anything, a lot of Zenith-esque like, turns and revelations. And like, oh, but you didn't know who was the real creator. And like, who's the real serial killer all the time? And then the second meaning, which I just finished today, uh Marshall Takes Manhattan, is about him coming to New York to take revenge on a Punisher-esque vigilante, who was the guy who was his... Torture Instructor in the War. Okay. And it's a very curious thing. Like, the first three issues, I think Mills and O'Neill, who, by the way, O'Neill is on top form here in terms of, like, strange comedic turns and every, you know, all the background is covered with with funny graffiti and over-the-top jokes and things you don't catch in the first time you read it. And all the character designs are super over-the-top parodies of classic Marvel and DC heroes uh, so the first three issues they're still trying to find their footing and I think in terms of uh, American pacing because they they're still used at the time I guess to the 2000 AD five pages seven pages and then you're done and now they have almost 30 pages per issue at this point so it's a very long, long drawn-out action scene and talking scene and people explaining and re-explaining the nature of that universe. But when they get into Groove, especially issue 5 and 6, they do some real impressive and I I dare say almost Ellen Moore in his prime-esque dissection of the genre. Because you wouldn't expect pet mills of all people for you know intersectionality. There's a whole issue fight scene, issue 5, where we get uh, cuts from the main hero's girlfriend. She's like a feminist uh, scholar. And she does like this huge critique of the superhero in the eyes of religion in terms of American war in South America, the dirty wars that the CIA and America waged during the Reagan years. And he actually manages to tie it all in a fairly surprisingly intelligent manner, which is something I really wouldn't expect for Pat Mills, who is a creator that I enjoy mostly for his outburst of of energy and insane creative decisions of, oh, let's throw that over there, and let's throw that over there. And this is him basically just slowing down and saying, well, okay, let's think about things and let's consider the way all those things are tied together. And it's so weird. It came out in the... Late eighties, and, and it has all the resonance of something that would come out now. You know, one of those big think pieces that you would find on something like Seekword. That would say, "Okay, let's think about this in terms of our of of our era and of the wars we waged at the time." And he takes something like the Punisher in the second series, and he turns on its head the idea that there was ever was such a thing as a good soldier in that war. Because the thing about the Punisher is the character that we're supposed to ignore the fact that he was a soldier in Vietnam. Other than oh, he was a soldier. He knows how to kill people. He's very good at it. We don't. We never are supposed to ask what exactly did Frank Castle do in that war where America bombed villages, right, and tortured people, and and this guy, this this Punisher, asked their prosecutioner or something like that. I don't remember his name exactly has this huge triad about, you know, we I did what I had to do, and we fought the good fight, and I have to, and, and I'm still fighting right now, and I have to save people, and martial law is just like, no, you, you were a monster, and you made me and others like me into a monster. There's this really, like, grim scene with him explaining to all those young soldiers, young super soldiers, about how to withstand torture, and martial law is saying, but You've basically taught us that nobody could withstand torture for a long time. So, what's the point of showing us all of those dirty, disgusting techniques other than to tell us how to do them? And this guy just winks at him like, I never said anything how to use them. Wink! Uh huh. That's it. I really like it. I'm surprised. I, I found, I thought it would be like awfully old fashioned, but it's, it holds up really, really well. I, I see. I haven't managed to catch your interest in Batman.
1: No, not really. But you know, it's it's. When was this published? This came out before his whole uh, slain thing, or afterwards? I
0: think during, right? because slain is still coming out since the late eighties till this very day.
1: No, there was a period where sudden downslide into like Mother Chaos, God Magic, whatever. Oh, he still had like, that. This must have been before then. back um, then.
0: Well, He's, it's not part of his interest in this series, not until now. I've read I've read the first two stories. It's a four hundred page book. It's almost every martial law story ever. Some are missing because there was there were all sorts of crossovers with other companies and other characters. There was a martial law pinhead from Hellraiser crossover, which they can't reprint here. So some pieces are missing, but most of it is here. And it's a very angry political thriller with superheroes and and black humor. And the thing I will always say about Pat Mills... Even when I don't like some of his stuff... And there's a lot of stuff that he did that I, I just don't approve of... Or I think is not very good. He's never just in it, you know... Because because uh, he gets paid. You always feel some sort of strange passion within him. Pat Mills is a very opinionated person... And a very passionate person, and comes out through his writing, which is always almost bursting at the seams from energy. Like I want to do this, and I want to talk about this, and I want to write about this. Five pages? Fuck it! I'll do the mother goddess, and the chaos of manhood, and the destruction of England, and the working class warfare of the late 1970s. Right? You know, it, oh, he's he's super passionate, even to this day. And I'm super. I'm impressed. He never he never just writes for the check, which is amazing for an early 20th century writer, right?
1: Yeah. There was a trade that I did want to discuss, or an arc, I should say, very quickly, because, uh, we're running a bit over time as it is. Uh, but just to say that I've read the first five issues of Motor Crush by Brendan Fletcher, Cameron Stewart, and Babs Starr from Image. Uh, absolutely fantastic. It's this high energy, compelling protagonist. The world is very interesting. The art is beautiful. The team did so much better here than they did with Batgirl. I liked their initial run on Batgirl, it sort of lost steam after a while, but this is just so much more charming. Uh, the premise is this protagonist, Domino Swift, is uh, an underdog in a Grand Prix race while she's secretly participating in illegal races to make enough crush, which is a chemical that makes bikes go faster unless they overdose and go insane. Uh, very interesting stuff and I was reading the first couple of issues and really marveling at how captivating it is like you just get sucked into the story and you follow it and all of these different mysteries are playing out and these characters uh, just a, A-list a work across the board this is a solid solid creative team and I strongly recommend it
0: I, I'm, I'm going to check it out it was on my two release, definitely Wow, so that was a longer than expected episode. Sean will have to cut, cut, cut during the editing.
1: I will do what I can. But uh, yeah, so for the Smorgasbord, I'm Sean Edry.
0: And I'm Tom Shapira. Until next time. Bon appétit.